Do you write data science code? Do you struggle loading large amounts of data or wonder what parts of your code use the maximum amount of memory? Maybe you just want to require smaller compute resources, servers, RAM, and so on. If so, this episode is for you. We have Itamar Turner-Trowing, creator of the Python data science memory profiler, Phil, here to talk about memory usage in data science. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 274, recorded July 8th, 2020. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Linode and us. Do you want to learn Python, but you can't bear to subscribe to yet another service? At Talk Python Training, we hate subscriptions too. That's why our course bundle gives you full access to the entire library of courses for one fair price. That's right. With the course bundle, you save 70% off the full price of our courses, and you own them all forever. That includes courses published at the time of the purchase, as well as courses released within about a year of the bundle. So stop subscribing and start learning at talkpython.fm slash everything. Bitamar, welcome to Talk Python to me. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I'm excited to talk about Python and memory. Yep, me too. <laughs> yeah, I think it's something that doesn't really get as much coverage as I think it deserves in the Python space. You know, if you're a Java developer or a .NET developer, people go on and on and on about optimizing the GC and tweaking this thing or that thing or your code or algorithms for memory management. If you're a C developer, you're constantly in fear of memory leaks and memory management. And in Python we get to just kind of coast. Or not. And so <laughs> my motivation for getting into this was doing uh, some scientific computing with uh, basically a giant pile of images, and we'd have to extract information from them. And I you know, initially just focused on getting it working. And then one day I said, okay, we're running this on these cloud computers, and it's taking you know 18 hours to process the data. Like most of the CPUs are idle because you're using so much memory. I wonder if this is a problem. And so I did some math and I talked to management about our expected revenue. And it turns out we were going to spend like 70% of our expected revenue just on uh, cloud computing, given my current implementation, <laughs> which wouldn't have let any, there wouldn't be any they, left over for like, Were they excited about that or were they not so excited? I didn't mention this. <laughs> I went and optimized it and then I just like, then I sent an email to my manager saying, look, look the great work I did. Exactly. But I, I hadn't done any optimization. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very, very cool. And so, and reducing the memory like meant that you could use a lot more CPUs because that was the bottleneck initially. Like we had this cloud VM that was like mostly just sitting idle because you just need so much RAM for each of the threads or processes. Right. And you can't get a high memory version of a cloud computer, but it still there is that trade-off, right? You've you want to yeah. take full advantage of the CPUs there. And obviously, the less memory is better. And also, just it might mean fewer cloud computers to manage. Yeah. And if you think about your computer, if you look at like the usage of your computer, much of the time, your computer usage is going to be like you're using 1% of the CPU just sitting there. And your RAM, if you're like a lot of computers have like eight gigabytes of RAM in their computer, your RAM is going to be like three quarters percent full or 75% full. 
basically it's just that proportionally RAM is much more expensive than computing. And so you don't have as much of a just look at all the CPU guy, like memory tends to be resource constrained and the failure modes are you run out of memory and like your computer's wedged or you lost all your data. Or, right, right. You run out of CPU, it goes slower. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, failure modes are much worse. Interesting. Yeah, well, it's going to be really fun to dig into it. And I think it's an interesting angle of just the Python ecosystem that people don't spend that much time obsessing about the memory. But it's important and it's interesting. And we're going to spend some time obsessing about it for the next hour or so for sure. Before we do, let's get into your story, though. How'd you get into programming in Python? I got into programming back in the mid-90s when my parents were... uh this business creating multimedia CD-ROMs, uh, which was an uh, exciting new technology in the mid-1990s. And so I ended up just re- doing coding for them. I got into Python a few years later uh, when I discovered ZOPE, uh, the Z, Z-O-P-E uh, web yeah. framework, which at the time was like really huge in the Python world. Like you go to Python conferences, there'd be like a whole track on ZOPE. And then I just stuck around and ended up using Python for lots of other things like distributed computing. I worked on Twisted for many years. Mm-hmm and scientific computing and just a variety of different things. Yeah, very cool. And uh, what do you do day to day? I've been doing training, stuff on uh, Docker and packaging for Python, um, hoping to eventually teach some stuff about Python memory, and then have some products, uh, do a little consulting on the side, that sort of thing. Yeah, very cool. Is this training in person? Is it online? Uh, what is it like? <laughs> Originally, this was uh, in-person <laughs> training. I was supposed to have like a like open enrollment class right after PyCon in Pittsburgh, for example. And nowadays it's over Zoom it's, because it's, <laughs> what are yeah. you going to do? Yeah, because the world is crazy. Yeah. It, it's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. That's, that's a lot of fun. I've, I've, I did that for like 10 years and really enjoyed my time doing in-person training. Luckily, there was there were no pandemics. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely got disrupted works. with other things, but not not too much. Yeah, we did some stuff over, I think, go to meeting, go to webinar, which there was no Zoom. So that's what we used. And it was pretty good, actually. Yeah, it's not, not a bad story. Yeah. All right. So speaking of obsessing with Python memory, let's just get started off with a, a little bit of an overview of how Python memory works. So... I feel like Python memory lives a little bit in between the C++ world where it's very explicit and the Java.net GC world where it's not even deterministic. What's the story? As a a prelude, this actually depends on which Python interpreter you're using. If you're using uh, PyPy, PyPy, it's actually basically like Java or .NET. If you're using CPython, which most people do, it's a little bit different. And the basic idea is that every... Python object has a reference counter. And so when you get a reference to an object, it gets incremented by one. You remove a reference, it gets decremented. So when you append your object to a list, that's an extra reference. If you destroy the list, that's the reference goes down to... If the reference goes down to zero, the object is not being used by anyone. There's no references to it. So it can immediately be freed up and deallocated. The problem with reference counting is that it's not doesn't cover all cases. If you have a circular set of circular references, the objects will never hit reference count of zero. So if you take a list and then you append it to itself, to itself, it's going because it has a reference to itself. Its reference count is never going to hit zero, even if you don't have any other references to it. So in addition to the reference counting, Python also has a garbage collection system, which every I think it's based on how many bytecodes have run. It will go and look for objects that are in this little loop by themselves, but not being used in any actual code. 
get rid of them too. Right. And I, I think the GC is also generational, like the other, like the other main ones, say Java and .NET as well. Yeah. And I don't quite remember how this works. Uh, so, uh, and it, you know, a totally maybe more maniacal example might be some, if you're studying some kind of graph theory type object, like a network of things or a network of relationships among people or something like that, where it doesn't even have to be one thing pointing back at itself. It could be right. thing A points at B, B points at C and D, D points back at F, but F points at A. If you can make a circle following that chain, reference counting breaks. Yeah. And so yeah. then you fall back to GC, the garbage collection. and Right. But I would say for the most part that just knowing the GC is there to kind of catch that edge case is really all most people need to know, right? Because the ver- the primary story is this reference counting story. What do you think? Unless you're using PyPy, because then there's no reference counting. It's only garbage collection. Yeah, but I'm thinking most people are running CPython. Maybe they're using some data science libraries, especially in the context of using your tool that we're going to talk about. It, it feels yeah. like it's definitely in the in the data science side of things. In that world, in the CPython world, then it's probably reference counting that you care the most about. Yeah. And I mean, just a, a fairly high level understanding that as long as something's referring to your object, it will exist. If the references go away, it will either immediately or eventually disappear and get deallocated. That's pretty much all you need to know the vast majority of the time. Yep. And the vast majority of time, that's enough, but not always. <laughs> not always. So we're going to talk about a project that you started called Phil, F-I-L, that is about profiling memory allocations for data pipeline type of scenarios in particular is optimized for that. Although I suspect you could use it for a lot of different things. But let's start the story by just talking about some memory challenges, I guess we could call them. So you wrote a a cool blog post article called Clinging to Memory, How Python Function function Calls Can Increase Your Memory Usage. Yeah. That's a pretty interesting one. Tell us the general idea here. And so this is something I encountered in the real world, so it can impact you. And this is more of an issue in the kind of applications where you're processing large amounts of data. So like one object might be like four gigabytes of RAM. Like if it's like, if objects live slightly longer and they're like, you know, a dictionary of three entries and there's only one dictionary, you don't really care how long it lives because it's not right, using. Right. Are you using 2.7 or 2.701 megabytes for this yeah. uh, working memory? Nobody cares, yeah. Yeah, when you have like an array that's like four gigabytes or 20 gigabytes, like this can like have very significant impacts. If, if an array lives even slightly longer than it needs to. And so the idea is if you have a function and you create something in it, and then you pass that object to another function that you're calling, you have function f and you're creating this, you have this large array and you pass it to g. If you have a local variable in inside of f that the, the, the parent function still refers to that array. Like the parameter that it accepted the data, for example. Yeah. yeah. Then the you, that reference within that function call is a reference. It means reference count's not going to hit zero, even if G like uses that array and then throws it away and doesn't care about it anymore. The parent function still has reference to that array. And so you can end up with these situations where if you read the code, you know that you are never going to use this data again. There is no way you can use it. But from Python's perspective, because there's a local variable within the function frame that's referring to it, that object is going to persist until that function returns or if there was an exception and exits. Right. Because everything that was loaded up in that function got defined. And so here's all the variables of the function and reference counting. They're still pointing at things until 
those variables go away, right? And they yeah. go away when the function returns. <laughs> yeah, and you can imagine like if you go into PDB, like you can actually travel up and down the, the stack and like you can go up to like the parent function and see the local variables, they're still there. Like you can still go in the, in the debugger prompt, just go up two frames to the parent caller and you'll still see the local variable pointing near a large object. And so you, you can restructure your code to in, in various ways to deal with this. And the way I ended up actually doing it was basically copying this idiom from C++ where you have a this object whose only job is to own another object. It has that, the, you end up with only one reference to the large array that you care about, which is in, from inside the owner object. And then you pass the owner object around. And when the owner, when you know that you don't need that data anymore, you tell the owner object to clear your contents. And then that one reference goes away and the memory is freed. So you sort of a, this interesting situation where every once in a while, you actually have to fall back to the manual memory management techniques that you have to use all the time in languages like C or C++. Right. You know, what's interesting is I, I see uh, examples of code like this, and then you'll, you'll see other people lamenting the fact that code is written this way. And they'll say, you should never write code this way. It's not necessary in Python because it has automatic memory management, or you should never do this like halfway through randomly set a variable to none and then keep going. Why would you ever do that? That's like, you don't need to do that, right? If you're not going to use it again. Oh, except when that was costing you an extra gig of memory, all of a sudden this kind of non-standard pattern, it turns out to be really valuable, right? It's the difference between it works or it doesn't work, or it's a thousand versus $200 a cloud compute or whatever, right? This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale that you need to take your project to the next level. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage, and the next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance that you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today with a $20 credit and you get access to native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, industry-leading processors, their revamped cloud manager at cloud.linode.com, root access to your server, along with their newest API and a Python CLI. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Linode when creating a new Linode account and you'll automatically get $20 credit for your next project. Oh, and one last thing, they're hiring. Go to linode.com slash careers to find out more. Let them know that we sent you. Yeah, and having like never done scientific computing before this job I was at a couple of years ago, it was an interesting experience learning a different, because the, the domain is different, like you have different constraints and different goals and some of the ways you write software end up being different. Like I, I'd, and unless you're doing data, like large scale data processing, most of the time in Python, you just don't think of any of these things like... You might yeah. have to worry about memory leaks, but that's a different sort of, much of the time, that's a different set of problems where like, you don't think about the fact that an object being alive for five more milliseconds might cost you like another <laughs> $100,000 if you're scaling up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's interesting. Another solution that you proposed, well, you proposed three solutions. One is this ownership story. One was maybe only applicable for very limited small functions, but you could just have no local variables and just basically chain one function call into another. Yeah. The, the intermediate one, though, seems possible, possibly reasonable as well, which is to reuse 
the local variable. So you can load up some data and then you're going to maybe make some changes, which will copy the data. Instead of having data one, data two, data three, you just say data equals, you know, load it, data equals modify the data, data equals modify the data again. And that way, at least as you go through these steps after each one, it's, you know, release the memory from the prior potentially. Yeah. And one of the things about sort of data processing applications, they often have these sort of idioms where you're like doing a series of steps. And this is where like keeping old copies of the data around tends to end up cumulatively being very expensive in terms of memory because it's a series of steps. Once you've done step one, you don't really care about the initial input. Once you've done step two, you don't care about that one. So just yeah. explicitly overwriting the previous step uh, is another way to do this. I could see somebody looking at this in a code review and going, why are you doing this? These data mean different things. One should be initial data. The other should be, you know, grouped by state and the third should be uh, some other thing like you're naming these wrong you know what i mean that's what i was i was kind of hinting at is like sometimes you need to, to break the rules to to break through to like a better outcome yeah and in general pretty much every best practice is very is situation specific and sometimes yeah, it's that, the vast majority but <laughs> yeah that's a really good point that it, it a lot of times when you hear advice like that it's spoken as if it was absolute but there's an implicit context Right. Like what you said, when you don't really care about memory and that kind of stuff, you just said you just go and write the code. But, you know, it probably means implicitly what I care about is readability and what I care about is maintainability. And I just want to optimize it to be as clean and pure as possible, which is fine. But if pure doesn't work and not clean totally works, like forget the clean. We don't care anymore. I want it to work. That's more important. Like functioning is primary here. Yeah. And then there's like places like uh, MicroPython where you're running on little embedded devices with very little RAM. And then some right. of the, the problems that you have in large data processing are translate down to very small programs. That's an interesting example for sure. Because again, if you didn't care about that extra meg of RAM, but all of a sudden you only have half a meg, now you really yeah. care about it. Yeah. I do want to throw out something from Philip Guo over at pythontutor.com. So if you want to understand like a lot of these relationships and how objects refer back to each other, he's got a really cool visualization. I think when you're over there, you have to check. There's like a, a checkbox at the bottom. Here, let me pull it up. Under the way it renders objects, I think you have to flip it from inline primitives to say render all objects on the heap like java and python do anyway if people want to like show that off or visualize that that's a really cool uh, quick one also if you want to observe reference counting without changing reference counting because like you might want to say how do i know if there's a reference to this you can't store a, <laughs> a variable and then point at it and say now we're going to ask because because you've now changed it right have you done anything with weak references Weak ref? I'm not sure I've ended up using them in scientific computing. I've definitely done them and used them in some places with uh, like asynchronous programming servers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You could use them for like caches that can kind of like auto expire and, and stuff as well. But they're really good yeah. for, I can create a weak reference to an object. Then you can ask how many things point at this. And even if you know something points at it, knowing whether that's one or two might help you get a different understanding, right? You're like, oh, I thought there was only one pointer. Why are there two pointers to this thing? Where did that second one come from? And so you can ask interesting questions without changing the reference counting with weak references. It's really easy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an API sys.getRefers that gives you the objects that refers to an object, but then yeah, you inevitably add the current <laughs> function frame as an additional reference and you have to discount it. Right, right. He threw also a git size of in here as well, 
What's the story that gets size of? The function call thing is sort of just an example of places where sort of automatic memory management gets in your way. But there are more fundamental limits or problems you end up with when using Python on, in memory intensive situations, if you, which you need to understand. And one of them is just that Python objects use a surprising amount of memory for what information that they store. Uh, so yeah, pretty much every, if you look at the implementation of the CPython interpreter, every object has an addiction to whatever data you need to actually store the object itself. It has on a 64-bit machine, which is most of them these days. It has a pointer to the class or the C type for the class. So that's another eight bytes. And then it has the reference count. So that's another eight bytes. Then I think if you have, if you, it's object sports garbage collection is even more. Uh, and so like if you check the sys.getSize of uh, is a nice utility that lets you use, tell me, tell you how many bytes object uses. I don't think that actually traverses the object tree right like if this thing if it's a list and the list points at things and those points at those yeah i think it's just how much is like that the immediate thing that that variable or value points at right yeah yeah okay that's what, that's what i thought yeah. yeah i can check what you're talking and if you check the how much memory like an integer uses like the number one it takes 28 bytes yep. and so if you think about like how you'd represent numbers in memory, like unless you have really large numbers where you obviously need more, 64 bits is sort of, will get you some really big numbers. It's only eight bytes, but you're actually doing, for every integer uh, with some optimizations, I think it reuses the low, the low thousand or 10,000 integers, but in general, it's 28 bytes yeah. per integer. So if you have a list with a million integers, that's Way like I, I did the math, and I think it was 35. A list with a million integers in it is 35 megabytes of RAM. If you allocated that in a C array, it would be eight megabytes of RAM. So you're using right. four and a half times as much memory just because you're using Python objects. In another example, while we're talking about it, is the character A. So in C, the character A would be what, four bytes or something like that? Uh, if you're using UTF 8, you can probably get it down to one byte. Yeah, yeah, you could definitely make it smaller if you do it right. Yeah. In Python, it's 50. <laughs> yeah. So also get size of, it does some interesting stuff. So if I give it a list of like a million items, it'll say the size is 800,000. It's not quite a million. Maybe it's 100,000. I think it's 100,000. But if I give it a list, which has the number one and also contains within that list, that list of 100,000 items, the size is 72. So yeah, you got to be real careful. It's it's It doesn't tell you the whole story, but it does, get, yeah, exactly. But it gives you a sense of, Oh, like the letter A is 50 and the number one is 28. The memory that we use per representation in data in Python is fairly expensive, I think is the takeaway, right? Yeah. So if you have like a common one place where people hit this is like you're reading in some data and then like you're creating like a, like a list per thing for like you're reading in some like rows of data from a CSV or something and you're turning into like here's a list and then like there's a dictionary with like a bunch of keys for each one or an object for each entry. And you end up with like a massive amount of, considering the information you're storing, you, you end up with a huge amount of just overhead from creating all those different Python objects. And so like one situation you end up in Python running out of memories if you're doing like data processing and it's just like, you just have 10 gigabytes of data you loaded. It's going to be a lot of memory. But sometimes it's not actually that much data if you store it on disk, or if you store it in uh, the appropriate C, like C object, and it's just a lot of data because you create a lot of Python objects 
And so it's using like five times as much memory as the actual information. Right, contains. right. So maybe load it into NumPy or Pandas or something like that instead yeah. of into a native Python dictionary or something. Yeah. So if you think about Python lists, which has a bunch of Python num integers in it. And so each of those Python integers is a, has like 28 bytes of RAM. A NumPy array, it's basically, it basically has the same Python overhead, but only once at the beginning where it says, I'm an array. And I store 64-bit <laughs> integers, and then the storage is just is not generic pointer to generic Python object. Right, right. It's, it's eight it's bytes just, per entry. Yeah, yeah. And so the information that would take 35 megabytes in a Python list will be eight megabytes in an NumPy array. Yeah. Another one that I mean, moving to some of these libraries that support it more efficiently certainly in the data science world make a lot of sense. But also something that makes a lot of sense that I think people may be overlooking is using different algorithms or different ways of processing. Like one really simple way is like, I need to load, compute a bunch of stuff and give it back as a collection. So I'm gonna create a list, fill it up and return it, right? That loads you know, maybe a million items into memory and all the cost and overhead of that. And then you give it over to be processed and off it goes. Alternatively, add a yield instead of a list and just do a generator and you process them one at a time. Because probably what you're gonna do when you get that list back is go through the list one at a time, right? And that uses one one millionth of the memory or something to that effect, right? It doesn't, it only loads one in memory at a time and not all of them. There's things like that as well that you can do. Yeah. If uh-huh. processing them one at a time in order makes sense. If you need to seek around and say, well, what well, the third one compared to the first one is, then forget it. Yeah, like the three basic techniques usually are uh, batching and streaming with a generator. It's like a sort of batches of batch one. size can, of one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then there's uh, compression where you have the same memory and same data semantically, but with less overhead. So like switching from Python list to NumPy array is in some sense compression. Uh, If you know your numbers are only going to go up to 100, you can use a 8-bit NumPy array. And then like you've cut your memory by like 80% at no cost because you have exact same information. And then the final technique is indexing where you need, you, know, to know, you need to load only some of the data, then you can sort of arrange your data. So you, can only, you only need to load that part. So like if you're doing accounting, like if you have one file for every month of the year, like you can just load July's file and then you don't have to worry about right. the data in the other months. Yeah, yeah, very cool summary. So that's the picture. That's the memory story. That's some of the challenges you might hit and some of the potential solutions that you might come up against. But at some point you might just need to know like, okay, this is about as good as it's going to get, but I still need to understand the memory better or I'm running out of memory. Why, where, or maybe you want to take the lazy approach. Maybe you want to start from, well, I know I have this problem of using too much memory. I know one of these things that these guys talked about will possibly solve it, but where should I focus my attention, right? I've got a thousand lines of Python, maybe only three need to be changed. Which are the three, right? So, you probably want to profile it somehow. Answer the question, like, where is the memory coming from? What's the problem? It's very difficult to optimize something if you can't measure it. Like the, the example we gave with uh, functions, keeping like local variables, keeping things alive. Like I would never, now that I know it's a problem, having encountered, I might be able to look for it. But at time, like it was, I believe it was something like extra 10 gigabytes of RAM or something. And <laughs> I don't think I ever would have spotted it just by reading the code. Yeah, because it looks perfect. It's clean. It's readable. 
it's optimized exactly for the scenario that you most of the time optimize it for. So it doesn't look broken. Yeah. If you want to understand why something is using too much resources, like you need to measure it. I built a profiler for a memory profiler called Phil, uh, Phil, F-I-L, which is designed to solve this problem because I haven't tried other tools available. I decided they weren't sufficient. Yeah. So Phil, I think is really interesting. And the thing that made it connect for me at first, I was like, well, we already have some pretty interesting ones. I mean, you've got built-in C profile. I think that only does CPU profiling, not memory. Yeah. We have memory underscore profiler, which will do memory profiling. Yeah, we I have can talk Austin. About that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have Austin. Are you familiar with Austin? Uh, I've not used it. I've used uh, Pi Instrument, and I know about PyTop, PySpy, and they're all yeah. sampling profilers. Right, right. And Austin's pretty interesting as well. But Phil... The way that you laid it out is really a lot of these profilers are either general purpose or they're built around the idea of working on servers and long living processes that do short amounts of work many, many times, right? Like a web server or something like that. And that's a pretty different scenario of I have a script, I need to run it once in order (laughs) and then look at where the memory comes from, right? Yeah. So memory profiler is the tool I ended up using when I was trying to reduce memory usage. And memory profiler will do this thing where it gives you, like you run around a function that says this function added 10K in memory or 100 megabytes of memory or whatever. And if you're trying to find a memory leak, this is actually pretty useful. Like you can say, like I call this function, like now my memory usage is higher. And so why, what, what happened? So you can just figure out this function is where your memory is leaking. But the thing that I was trying to do, and what data processing applications, as you mentioned, are trying to do is reduce your peak memory. The idea is that you're running this process, it's going to load in some data, it's going to process it, and then it's going to write it out, and then it's going to exit. And the peak memory usage is what determines how much hardware you need, or virtual hardware. Like, it doesn't matter if like 99% of the time it's only using 100 megabytes, if 1% of the time it needs 60 gigabytes of RAM. Like, it's that peak moment in time that you need to that's what you have to provision for yeah yeah the high watermark it's like yeah. you're building a dam like you figure out what the highest flood you get is and the thing about memory profiler like you can run it on and run your function and it'll say this line of code added zero megabytes of ram like measured before measured after they're the same so no memory was added <laughs> it's fine but that doesn't tell that you spike right <laughs> right but it may be that it allocated 20 gigabytes of ram did something and then deallocated. And so you have to, the memory profiler, like recursively go through your whole code base function by function until you find that one line of code that's spiking things. And so you can use it to figure out the peak memory, but it is a very manual, tedious process. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and if you're, once your code base is hard enough, it, excuse me, can become. It's quite difficult. And another big distinction between servers and data pipelines is how much you care about memory leaks. As long as it's a small memory leak, like if you're doing like a process that runs for an hour and it leaked 100k, like after like an hour, it'll just exit. If you have, if you're leaking 100k an hour, but your process, you have like 10 processes and they're running for a year, 100k may still not be a problem. But like there are some <laughs> thresholds where for a server, yeah. like it accumulates and your server crashes and for a batch process, so long it's not impacting the peak, you don't care. Right, well, imagine you leak only one kilobyte of memory, but it's in the context of a web request, and you're getting (laughs) 100,000 web requests an hour. All of a sudden, 
your server is toast, right? Whereas if you call the function once and you leak a kilobyte and you're doing like a top to bottom run at once data pipeline, who cares? <laughs> Doesn't yeah. matter, right? It's it's uh, lost in, in the void there. So I think also just the focus of what you care about is really different. Right? You don't generally have these huge spikes in server type applications. You can if you're doing like reporting or other weird stuff, but like standard data-driven stuff, it's it's pretty flatline. Yeah, and it turns out that if you think about it, a memory leak, a tool that can find peak memory can also find memory leaks because if you have a memory leak, peak memory is always like right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you just run for a while and peak memory, eventually like your memory is overwhelmed by the leak and then you dump the memory then. And so that, and that moment is peak memory. So a tool that can find peak memory can deal with leaks, but it deal, deals with leaks can't necessarily help you with peak memory. Uh, so it's yeah. actually a more general concept. Talk Python to me is partially supported by our training courses. How does your team keep their Python skills sharp? How do you make sure new hires get started fast and learn the Pythonic way? If the answer is a series of boring videos that don't inspire or a subscription service you pay way too much for and use way too little, listen up. At TalkPython Training, we have enterprise tiers for all of our courses. Get just the one course you need for your team with full reporting and monitoring. Or ditch that unused subscription for our course bundles, which include all the courses, and you pay about the same price as a subscription. Once. For details, visit training.talkpython.fm business or just email sales at talkpython.fm. Another thing I like to do is relate quantum mechanics back to programming ideas. <laughs> and I think they're really relevant in both profiling and debugging. And that is the idea I'm thinking of is the observer effect, that by observing some phenomenon, you might actually change it, right? Maybe the the tool you're using to measure it actually makes some difference. Or in quantum mechanics, like just insane, bizarre observer effect, <laughs> things happen that like it shouldn't, but it does. One of the challenges I see around profiling is especially intra-instrumenting style profilers, is you run it because you it's too slow, you won't understand the performance, so you apply the profiler to it. Now it's 10 times slower or 20 times slower, but not evenly, right? Like if it's in a really tight loop, that part slows down more than if you're calling like a C function that you're not technically profiling that part, but it's still slow. That might not really slow down at all. So you might exaggerate different parts of it as well. And it sounds to me like Phil doesn't have much of this observer problem. Yeah, so the observer problems tend to be worse in CPU profiling because, as you said, like the act of profiling can change how fast pro the, the process runs or which parts of the code run faster. So C profile suffers from this because it's adding overhead per Python function. And so code that has a lot of Python functions will be slower than code that has less Python functions, even, the, even if the actual runtime is the same. So the ads overhead unevenly. And the solution, on the other hand, CPU profiling is actually sampling. We only, like, every thousand times a second, you see what's running right now. And tools, I believe Austin works that way, and PySpy and PyInstrument. Right. It's more like a, a very, like a helicopter parent. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Instead of actually walking along every step, just constantly asking. Yeah. And so then, then it gets a chance to run faster or whatever when it's not asked. Yeah. The, the impact is is quite minimal, and because slower CPU functions will show up more when you're just peaking every once in a while, like statistically it'll converge. Like you'll get a overview of where performance is being spent that isn't exactly right, but like it's close enough that you can that it doesn't matter that it's not exact. 
So that's CPU. In memory, sampling is might work well for something like a memory leak, because with a memory leak, like eventually all your memory usage is this one function being called over and over. So if you only check some of the time, that's like eventually you'll catch it. But if you care about the peak, you have to maybe you don't have to capture all the allocations, but like you may have like one like one specific allocation that's like twenty gigabytes. That's that's what's causing your peak. And if your like sampling doesn't catch it, then the sampling is the, the profiling is useless. And so, effectively, one way or another, you have to track every memory allocation if you actually want to find the peak memory. And so, the the implementation approach, whereas sampling is like the superior approach, and for CPU, if you care about a high watermark or peak memory, instrumentation is often the only way to go if you have uneven allocation patterns, which is the case in data processing applications. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like maybe a 50% speed hit is what the docs say. That doesn't sound too bad. Yeah. I mean, it, it very, like, it's, it's probably slower in some cases and faster in others. This is what you like if you run PyStone. Yeah. It's not like a thousand percent or something like that. Right. Yeah. And I spent basically, yeah, once your profile is slow enough, people just don't use it because like, they don't have the patience. Yeah. So a lot of the effort I put like, the basic idea of what it does is is not that sophisticated. It's basically that you you intercept all memory allocations, yeah. and you keep track, and then whenever you hit a new peak, you you store a copy of that so that you know that's the peak. It's just if yeah, you want well, to do that with a little over, overhead, that that takes work. Right. Absolutely. So one of the challenges is the reason you're using the profiler probably is because you have a lot of data. And you built it in some small scenario, and then you run in the real scenario, then it actually is not doing as well as you'd hoped. That's exactly when you need to be able to run it with a profiler. And you need it to work fast, I guess is what I'm saying, to really use it in real scenarios. Yeah. And another thing I've done to handle that, which, and this is a new project, so this is all like work in progress, but I know at least like I've gotten at least one success story of someone saying they found a, like within minutes, they found a memory issue they wouldn't have found otherwise. So I, I know it's useful for some people and other people have bugs. But another feature that I've added is when the worst case scenario for me- for running out of memory is your program just crashes. And this can be as bad as like your computer just wedges altogether, which is not uncommon. Uh, like just everything's become so utterly slow that like, yes, if you left it alone for a day, it'd come back, but <laughs> you put files to restart it, uh, or you get like, a, or just crashes. And you can do a core dump, but like the core dump doesn't tell you. In theory, it has information you want, but. Yeah, um, in practice, that's a whole another level right there. Yeah. And, or yeah. it actually does not have the information you want to come to think of. One another thing, a feature I've added is there, Phil makes some attempts to handle out of memory crashes. Like if you run out of memory, it'll say like, okay, uh, you just got a failed allocation. So I'm going to try to deallocate all the large allocations that I know about just to free up some memory. Um, and it has like this emergency stash, of like 16 megabytes that it'll like, it just allocates up front. And so like it you know, breaks the glass, deallocates the memory. So there's a bit more. It lets it go and then starts tearing stuff down as hard as it yeah. can. Yeah. And then it okay. tries to, to dump a report of like, this is what your memory usage was. And it won't always work. And I suspect it needs a bunch more work. Like it needs bunch of optimization because I like feel it dumping the report from field text memory. But the idea, like my goal at least is that when you run out of memory, instead of just a crash, you'll actually get some feedback that will help you diagnose the problem. Yeah, that's really, really cool. I don't know how C Python, a C profile, excuse me. I don't know exactly 
how deep its reach is. But in C-Profile, if I'm trying to look at, say, data science stuff, and I'm calling a library and it's using its internal malloc and its ter- internal C stuff to manage the memory down at the C layer, I don't know, C-Profile will check that. You know, if it's doing like crazy Fortran stuff or other allocations, who knows? So C-Profile, I mean, it's giving you CPU, but it's... Yeah, I'm sorry, memory profiler, the one that does the memory one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Python actually has a memory memory profiler thing, trace malloc, Mm -hmm. but it only knows about Python API, memory APIs. Like if you're right. using an arbitrary C++ library, you won't know about it. Which is common in the data science world, right? I mean, yeah. that's exactly where yeah. a lot of the action is. Yeah. yeah. Memory profiler has a bunch of different ways it can work, but it can actually, the most general way it works is like at the beginning of the line of code, the end of the line of code, it checks just how much memory that process is using. And so it'll work with any allocation, but it has the other downsides that we talked about earlier. So memory right, profiler right, right. can actually... The reason I was using it was because it can actually catch any allocation from any C library. It's I just see. painfully for my <laughs> for purposes of yeah. reducing memory usage. For sure. And so my goal with Phil, Phil was to not just be tied to Python code so allocations and be able to just generically support anything that any third party library is using, which is somewhat tricky the way the way it's implemented because there's like. I don't know, a dozen different ways you can allocate memory in a, in a program and more if you support, add support for Windows. Like there's sort of yeah. malloc and then there's mmap and then there's POSIX memoline and there's like C has aligned alloc and there's just Linux as memfd create. You can create files in memory and, and there's, you can map mmap. You can sort of load files into memory of your process and then like the memory usage is uneven because the operating system will cleverly load and unload stuff from disk on demand. And so it is affecting how much memory you use, but the OS will sort of optimize it for you, so it's not clear how to measure it. So there, there's a lot of ways that if you want to track everything, like it, there's a lot of them, and I don't do all of them quite yet, but I've been sort of adding them one by one and hope to cover the, the vast majority of cases pretty soon. Yeah, but you covered some of these at least already, yeah? Yeah. I cover basic MMAP usage, malloc, calloc, realloc, which are sort of the standard APIs. Added aligned alloc, which is C++. Uh, apparently, at least in some cases, Fortran. I, I've never done anything with Fortran. I just know that it's a thing that scientific computing uses. And so like I said, okay, I'm going to figure out if Fortran is covered by this. And it turns out that traditionally, Fortran never actually had memory allocation. Uh, you would just like write some code and you'd say, I'm going to have this array and that's all you ever got. But modern Fortran from 1990 onwards has explicit allocation and Phil can at least capture that if you use at least GCC's Fortran compiler. And so the idea is uh, you should be able to just take arbitrary data processing or scientific computing code and it will figure out those allocations. It won't tell you like which line of Fortran or which line of C was responsible because that's like... There are tools that do that, but the performance overhead is immense. But it will tell you at least which line of Python was responsible, and much of the time that's sufficient. Right. And as a Python developer, really, that's kind of the answer you want. You don't want to know that like this internal part of NumPy did it. You just want to know, I called, you know, load CSV on pandas or something, and that's where the memory is or, yeah, or exactly. something, right? You want to see the kind of boundary into that library, because that's, that's where you control. You're not going to go rewrite pandas or NumPy. Yeah. 
and yeah, much of it. So yeah, the, you, you will like the, the goal of the field is to tell you where in your Python code the memory usage was and not only tell you that in a very easy to understand way, which was another one of my goals. Yeah. So you want to tell people maybe describe the flame graphs that they can see and explore? Yeah. Uh, and maybe we can link to one in the show notes. So flame graph, uh, I think uh, Brendan Gregg came up with the idea. And the idea is it's sort of showing you, you know, your program is like a, you can think of it as a, any point you have like a call stack, like you have function F calls function Z calls function H. That's sort of a stack. And so you can put these bars that where the wider they are, the more resource they're using. Uh, Brendan Gregg originally did this for CPU. I'm using it for memory. And the idea is, so if you have a really wide, like if you have a bar that's like 100% of the screen, that's like it's, this thing's using all, this or the functions of call, they're using all your memory. If it's like narrower, it's using less memory. And then I've arranged it in a way that it actually includes the source code. So what you're reading looks like a stack trace. It looks like like something through an exception and you're just reading it. But the width of the bar shows you which lines of code were responsible for how much memory cumulatively. Uh, and I also added some stuff where this is building on a Rust library called Inferno, which is great, uh, which didn't, didn't much of the heavy lifting. But I added a feature to Inferno where the wider the bar, the more memory it's using, the redder it is. And so the idea is you just look at the, the graph and you can just see like where it's red is where. Where is it red? That's the problem. That's the yeah. thing you got to focus on, right? Yeah. And so like your eye just naturally focuses on the expensive parts of the code. And then what you're reading is a spectrus. Yeah. And these are cool. You can embed these into the web pages and then you can hover over them and click and like zoom into the functions and, and really explore it quick and easy, right? Yeah. But Brendan Gregg originally wrote this sort of Perl script that converted data into these SVGs and then Inferno library uh, ported that to Rust. And so I'm using and it so it did much of the work and I'm just building on top of it mostly, submitting yeah. a few small features. But yeah, it's, it's yeah, nice. like this whole UI for exploring there. To use it is super simple. Like if you were going to run Python space your app.py with its arguments, you just would replace Python with fill-profile space run and that's it, right? And you get this output? Yeah, my goal was also no options. Like this isn't a People don't run memory profiling like every day. Like it's not like a tool you want to tweak and customize your own personal needs or that you want to spend a lot of time learning. So another of my goals is just it should just work. Um, so I, I've, at the moment it has one command line option, like where to dump the data. You don't even need to set that or think about it. And then the output is like a HTML page that has the graphs embedded and has some explanations. And so the goal is as much as possible to make it as sort of transparent and easy to use. And I have some further ideas of how to improve the UX, which I haven't gotten to yet. But Nice. So as like a data scientist or a computing person who is not necessarily a programmer, I could just drop in here, pip install, fill, fill dash profile, run my thing that normally I would just say Python run. And that's, that's all I really got to know. And then I just yeah. look at a web page. Uh, yeah, so it'll open easy. the web page automatically if you're it can. Uh, so you don't even have yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> If you the goal is you run install. it, and it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you the goal is you run it, it pops up a web page. You read the web page, and you you have the answer. Yeah. of what's using where memory is going. You spoke about one of the cool features being the out of memory catch and analysis, and you've got to do a slightly different thing on the command line to make that work, right? Yeah, the issue is, and this is a thing I can probably fix eventually. It's just this is sort of a limit in my implementation. The code that generates the report right now is in Python. And if you just run out of memory, you can't go back into Python at that point. Yeah. Uh, so if you run out of memory, like it, it, it's not the experience isn't quite as nice. Uh, eventually, I might end up like 
if it reaches a point where I'm not like like iterating it as quickly, uh, I might rewrite that in Rust. And then at that point, like, it, it might be feasible to actually like have the fully nice UI and the crash scenario yeah. as well. Right. Okay, cool. Now, also currently it runs on POSIX, Linux, and Mac OS only, right? Yeah, I would expect that. I'm not sure it would run on anything other than like, if you run this in FreeBSD, my guess is it won't work. Yeah. But I don't think Linux and Mac OS, yeah. Yeah, I don't think data scientists or scientists are using much FreeBSD. Yeah, right. and Mac OS was uh, yeah added fairly recently, and someday I would like to add Windows, but it's there's a lot of like dealing with like linkers and like fairly yeah. low level details that I don't know as much about on on Windows. So it should be possible. I've seen things that make that, that make me think that it is possible. I just it's a chunk of work I haven't gotten to because they're higher. Sure. Uh, yeah, you've either got to get it working or <laughs> yeah, even just supporting or, Mac OS has had a lot of work. So yeah, yeah, I'm sure it was. So I actually think that maybe you don't have to worry too much about Windows, and that's not to say that people don't use Windows. Windows is used by like half the Python developers, and it's probably pretty heavy in the data science world as well. But, you know, Windows 10 now has Windows subsystem for Linux, and V2 is quite nice. So it's it's very possible you can just point people at, you know, you have to use a Windows subsystem for Linux. It would probably work because it's all, it's all APIs that I would expect are emulated fairly faithfully. Yeah, I think it's just um, um, Ubuntu virtual machine, so I don't think you have to do anything. My impression is that it, well... At least the original one was rather more sophisticated. Like there was something about like yeah. trans- translating syscalls. I don't know about version two, but yeah, there, there's a decent chance it'll work just fine on WSL. Yeah, I'll put a link to Chris Moffat's article on creating a win using Windows SL to build a Python development environment on Windows, and uh, maybe that'll help people in general. Maybe this will work. I don't know. We can give it a try. Cool. And then you also, you know, it's one thing to just say, "Well, too bad that didn't work." It's a lot better to say, and here are some ideas for making it better. So you have a, a couple of recommendations for data scientists on how to be more efficient with their code and their memory. So I talked uh, earlier about batching, indexing, and compression, and I actually gave a, I was supposed to give a talk at PyCon about the, that this year. It, it was, I mean, there's a recorded, recording of it, but I never gave it live. And there's a series of articles here that sort of talk about those ideas and then show how to apply them in NumPy, show how to apply them in Pandas. And I've started writing some articles about like how to just Python level issues, like how do you like we talk about with like function calls and just ways to structure a code to reduce memory usage. So I'm so there's a bunch of articles that are already adding more over time, just with sort of the the techniques you need to once you figure out where the problem is to reduce the memory usage. Right, right. Yeah. I just saw your your video. I didn't realize I didn't watch it yet, so I'll put a link to it in the show notes so people can watch your virtual PyCon talk. Yeah, was, I've been going to PyCon for a very long time, and so it's just really sad not being able to see like friends I only meet once a year. And I know PyCon is like my geek holiday. <laughs> you know, just get out of there and hang out with a lot of my friends that I only see, yeah. otherwise interact with online, and it's really special. It's too bad it didn't happen this year. Yeah, someday. Yeah, someday it'll be back. Someday like everything. All right. Well, these are really interesting ideas. I think covering them in general is good. And Phil is a cool project. So I think it'll help some people out there who are having challenges. Maybe their code is using too too much memory and swaps out and becomes insanely slow. 
or they just couldn't process the data they wanted because it didn't work. So they can hit it with this, use some of your recommendations, and maybe unlock some answers. Yeah, I should add, this is a very new project. And so like, I know one person for whom it worked right, but I also know one person for whom it just wildly misreported the memory usage. Uh, He's hoping to send me a reproducer later this week. We can fix it. Uh, So if it doesn't work, I very much encourage you to file a bug report. Uh, Let me know. I'm happy to do a screen sharing session and sort of help some people debug it just because I, I want this to be a tool that works for people. And so if it's not working, I want to help. And it's an early enough stage that I expect that there are still a bunch of major issues, even if it like it does actually work in some cases. So please try it. It might just work. And if it doesn't, please let me know and I'll do my best to help. Yeah, very cool. And speaking of which, you know, people are asking me recently, hey, I'm looking for an open source project to contribute to. Do you have any recommendations on ones I might look at or consider contributing to? What's the story there? Are you looking for people who might participate? I would be happy to accept contributions. It's some parts of it are, there's a lot of fun stuff in there. Like in terms of low level systems programming, there's like, there's a bunch of Rust and like a bunch of C code and like poking into the internals of C Python. If that is a thing that interests you, there's a bunch of work there. There's also a bunch of UI things that could be done. Like if you think about profiling, the real usage pattern should really be profile this program, try to fix it, and then say, profile this again and show me the difference. Like, And then you can have a visualization of the differences. That is my eventual goal, is like to have a, a user experience that's not just what you use now, but actually shows you if things are better or worse and where. And so if people are interested in sort of that sort of UX kind of work, there's a room there. What about building like yeah. tutorials and uh, stuff like yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, like in general, I'm... It'd be exciting to see people take it on. But it's also, at the same time, look. <laughs> Some low-level stuff, right? You will hit these places where it's like, I'm poking into the, like, I'm causing like slight memory leaks internally in CPython for, for optimization the purposes. Yeah, <laughs> things like that. Uh, <laughs> sure. Because sure. you want to be able to refer to pointers being like, there's a bunch of work in order to not have a lot of overhead when you report a new allocation. And so you want to be able to, like keep like a pointer address in the Python interpreter as a persistent key, which means you have to make sure things don't get garbage collected. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah, I can imagine the low level, this is a, a beast. Yeah, the, the debugging can be tricky, but it's a lot of fun. And, and it's, yeah, it's a very, I find it sort of a therapeutic project because like it's like, it's tricky and difficult, but it's also like a very, it's like a closed universe. Like, it's, you know, you're doing web development or distributed systems. It's like you're talking to remote services and like you have to spin up five processes and like you're, you're dependent on the whole external world to make anything work these days. Whereas this is sort of like it's a program that runs on your computer, read some data, write some data. Like there's no, there's no outside world. Yeah, that's cool. So it's just like you can stay focused on the problem at hand and not the fact that like GitHub is down or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. All right, before I let you out of here, though, let me ask you the final few questions. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? Uh, I use SpaceMacs, which is a Space configuration Max. of Emacs that makes Emacs a lot more like a modern ID. Nice. It's like okay. It makes Emacs like experience jump 20 years forward just by That's installing awesome. and configuring the right packages. Cool. And a notable PyPI package? Pip install, is it fill or fill dash profile? I got a pip install. It's fill profiler, no dash or hyphen. So like F-I-L-E-R 
O-S-I-L-E-R. That's an obvious one. What's another one that maybe you've come across recently and you're like, oh, this is really cool. People should know about. Uh, nothing is, I guess, just to mention Austin, I, I don't know quite as much about it, but PySpy is, is another, it's another sampling profiler and it's another kind of a system programming package where like it's doing these interesting things in, in Rust where it's like, it looks at like the memory layout. It doesn't, it looks at the memory layout of your Python program, like parses out the data structures and reads things out. So it's another sort of very intense system programming, which ideally is all hidden behind the scenes. It just gives you really useful results. Cool. Um, all right. Well, that's a good one. Yeah. I have to check it out. I haven't tried that one. All right. Final call to action. People want to get started with Phil. What do they do? Go to pythonspeed.com slash products slash Phil Profiler. Maybe getting the URL wrong. I should probably get a shorter URL. Excuse me. Google F-I-L space profiler. I should do it. <laughs> or you can put a link in the show notes. Yeah, I'll definitely have a link in the show notes, no doubt. Yeah. Googling Phil space profiler works for me. Works for me. Or you can go to pythonspeed.com and then there'll be some links to that and other stuff I've written. All right. Very cool. Also include the link to your virtual PyCon talk as well so people can check that out. Cool. All right. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was Itamar Turing-Trowing, and it's been brought to you by Linode and us over at TalkPython Training. Start your next Python project on Linode's state-of-the-art cloud service. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E. You'll automatically get a $20 credit when you create a new account. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps course. Or if you're looking for something more advanced, check out our new async course that digs into all the different types of async programming you can do in Python. And of course, if you're interested in more than one of these, be sure to check out our everything bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. (laughs) 